guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> In the rainy, the rainy days of summer. Is it still summer? It is still summer. It's not fall yet. It's Florida summer for sure. And I even think on the calendar it's technically summer, but I think there was like snow in Colorado last week or something. Something just yeah. I couldn't wrap my mind around it at all. I saw on social media they had like a picture of an alligator in Colorado that was just hanging out sunbathing in the snow. So yeah, that's a little strange. That's it's a little early for snow. I don't know how things work in other states. So yeah. it could be right on time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So anyway. I guess that's pretty much it. Yeah, I've just been sitting in my house. It's been very gloomy and there's been a yeah. lot of activity in the tropics, as they say. And so it's just oh. been constantly watching um, storms forming and then not coming towards us and being happy about that and then seeing a new one pop up. So yeah, it's just been very rainy and just gloomy. I can't even listen to the, you know, coffee talk guy that I listen to that you and I, the weather guy here in town. Yes. I can't listen to it around my husband because he hears his voice. He's like, please stop. You have to stop <laughs> watching. <laughs> I have to put a headphone in and like sneak into another room and just like s- totally focus on the tropics. So yeah. and now there's like uh, 11 things going on. So I'm just <laughs> I'm totally chicken little just running around, just uh, not not getting anything done, just freaking out over everything. And nothing's even coming to us. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. By the time this is released, we'll probably have 17 on the way. So who yeah, knows? I know. Well, that's just I figured that th- this is just what getting older is. You just sit around and watch the weather channel like I mean, what else are you supposed to do <laughs> that's all it is <laughs> so. talk to people no not interested <laughs> right all right so getting into the episode there's a popular debate in the true crime community over whether or not there is ever such a thing as what they call justifiable homicide there are those who believe that killing another person is wrong in every situation and there are those who feel that sometimes the victim actually deserve their fate Just a couple of examples of times that this occurs. These are usually the types of situations where a parent might find someone harming their child and then they kill them in the heat of the moment or cases where victims of abuse end up killing their abusers. And some of these types of stories, the killers are even hailed as heroes in the eyes of the public. The story this week involves a murder that some have said was justified after the victim had spent years abusing numerous women in his life. The story takes place near Dublin, Ireland, and before we get into the details, we're going to tell you a little about Dublin in this week's segment of We Googled This City, and I'm so excited because we so rarely leave the U.S., so Melissa, I can't wait to see what you came up with this week. Can't wait to see how I screw this one up. Here we go. (laughs) International screw-ups. All right, so Dublin is the capital and largest city in Ireland and has an urban area population of around 1.17 million residents. Uh, There is no census to be found there. (laughs) If you're a young person, Dublin is really the place to be. In Europe, Dublin has the youngest overall average population. Around half of all of its residents are under 25 years old. Well, that was kind of interesting. And that could be in part to the fact that Dublin has over 750 pubs and the legal drinking age is just 18 years old, which that's the legal drinking age a lot of places. If you're in Dublin and looking to find someone to smooch, well, I can't help you. But if you were up for kissing less of a human and more of a stone, then boy, do I have a place for you. If you travel just two and a half hours away from Dublin, you can visit the Blarney Castle. And Mandy, you're actually the one that told me about this. I knew it was in Ireland, but... I didn't think about this when I was Googling, so you, you're you responsible for this one. That's what I'm trying to say. 
<laughs> so within this castle is the Blarney Stone. It's said that by kissing the stone, the kisser receives the gift of eloquence and persuasiveness. But it's not as simple as just kissing the stone. You actually have to go full Tobey Maguire and Spider-Man kissing Kirsten Dunst and do it upside down. Guardrails have now been put in for safety measures as one person died very early on because the old way of doing this, this is terrifying, was to, you know, take your friend, drop them down the side, hold their ankles while oh. they're upside <laughs> down. Yeah, then they kiss the freaking stone. Can you, do you have anyone in your life you trust enough to let you go upside down to become more persuasive like that's the goal you're a more persuasive person oh my gosh no, no. oh my gosh no well the only reason I even knew about this was because my dad actually went on a trip to Ireland and he did this well I didn't realize until just now that he was upside down like <laughs> well there's the guardrails now but it's still a very freaky looking thing like it doesn't it's not natural looking as far as like it's not just kissing a stone. You have to like do a whole thing. And I feel like this was just started like to kind of punk people. It was like Ashton Kutcher hundreds of years ago. And it's like, let's see which idiots are going to do this. Lots of idiots do it. Apparently it's a big thing. <laughs> Lastly, on September 25th, 1976, a 14-year-old boy named Larry Mullen Jr. placed a notice on a board at his school that he was looking for other students to join him in starting a band. Seven students responded to the post on a beautiful day, and a band soon formed. They went through several names, including Feedback and The Hype, before settling on U2. I guess you could say Larry found what he was looking for. That is a U2 song, kind of. <laughs> it wasn't great, but isn't that cool? Like, at 14 years old, they got together and made this band, like yeah. a little school band? That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's all I got. I'm not really a YouTube fan, so I'm sorry. Well, I'm not either. I had to Google. And <laughs> and the song is I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I was like, how am I going to – how do I do this? And yeah. it didn't work well. So <laughs> well, somebody, well somebody out there will receive it well, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Right. On March 30th, 2005, multiple people called 999 to report that they had seen human body parts floating in the Royal Canal in Dublin. Peter Steiny reported that he'd seen a severed leg with a sock on the foot, while another man, James O'Connor, reported that he was walking on the banks of the canal when he saw an arm, leg, and torso at 6.56 p.m. Just seven minutes later, emergency services arrived and members of the fire department used a fork-like object that was used for searching ponds and rivers to catch one of the floating body parts to first make sure that it was, in fact, a human body part. When they pulled up an arm, they knew that this was legitimate, and they called for police to take over the scene. The firefighters actually placed the arm back into the water to preserve it until the police could come and figure out what to do. By the time the appropriate team arrived at the scene, it was starting to get dark, so the police cordoned off the area, but they were unable to search for body parts until the next morning. After standing guard all night, the Garda sub-aqua unit began the work of retrieving the remains at 8.30 a.m. the next morning. They struggled to get the pieces out of the water due to the decomposing condition of the remains, but they were able to recover seven pieces which were each placed in special bags and carefully brought to the surface. The remains were sent to the local morgue where they quickly realized that almost all of the body had been recovered except for the head and the victim's penis. The lead investigator on the case was a man named Christy Mangan. He needed the results of an autopsy to determine more information that would help them identify this victim. 
which of course was very challenging because they didn't have the head and therefore they didn't have dental records. Dr. Michael Curtis at the Dublin City Morgue began performing an autopsy at 7.40 p.m. on the day that the body parts were retrieved. One thing that was very obvious was that the body was in advanced stages of decomposition. The parts had been in the water and exposed to the sun for long enough that all of the pigment was completely gone from the skin. This made it impossible to even tell what skin color or race the victim was. The flesh was completely white. The body parts were recovered with clothing still on them, and they noted that the victim was wearing a white-colored Ireland jersey, a vest, white underwear, and socks. The torso had 22 stabs in the front and back, as well as three other cuts to the back. Based on the wounds, the medical examiner believed the weapon used was a sharp knife, possibly the kind that you'd have in your kitchen. The stabbing was brutal and injured nearly all of the victim's internal organs. The cause of death was determined to be numerous stab wounds, but strangely the victim didn't have any defensive wounds on his hands, meaning he either didn't or couldn't fight off his killer. The victim had been dismembered after the death, and they believed that he was around six feet tall. A toxicology test was performed on a blood sample, and it was found that the victim did have ecstasy present in his blood. Unfortunately, no identifying marks or features were found on the remains, and the victim was just a John Doe until police could find other clues that might lead them to the identity of the victim. There wasn't much going on, so investigators started by asking the public for help. They pleaded to anyone who might have information to just come forward, and it wasn't very long before an interesting tip emerged. Citizens began contacting police and saying that they believed the victim was killed in a mutie ritual killing. If you're not familiar with ritual murders of this nature, which I was not either, I had to actually do a little bit of deep diving to kind of understand more about what this is. It is a form of human sacrifice practiced by some African tribes. And according to the tipsters, the characteristics of this murder were very similar to those in a muti murder. In a ritual murder, there are specific characteristics that researchers and investigators look for to determine if the victim was sacrificed in this type of killing. One of the main things is body dismemberment. In these specific tribes, it is believed that if the body parts of the person who are sacrificed are ingested, it can be medicinal or the body parts can also be buried in some cases. Both of these things are meant to grant another person power, health, wealth, or strength. This is actually such a rare practice and it's done in so few tribes that there really is not a ton of information about it out there. But in 2001, Scotland Yard, which is the main headquarters of the Metropolitan Police in London that oversees all of London's 32 boroughs, except for the city of London, they did this extensive investigation into these muti ritual killings. And there's even a documentary that they created while they were learning about this practice. I saw a part of it on YouTube. It's called Muti Murders, the Dark Side of Occult Belief in Africa. And what the investigators learned was that in these ritual killings, the victim is dismembered and their organs are removed while they're still alive. <gasps> yes. And it's also standard for the head and genitals to always be removed. Muti murder victims are rarely found completely nude and oftentimes they are found in or near water. So it seems like this theory was plausible in this case. So the investigators had no choice but to follow that lead and see really if it took them anywhere. Police in Ireland contacted the South African police to ask for their assistance. Unfortunately, this ended up being a dead end, even though it seems like it would have been promising. 
The South African police reviewed the details of the autopsy and the events surrounding the discovery of these body parts, and they came to the conclusion that this was probably not a muti ritual killing. It didn't really have some of these specific characteristics or seem like somebody who knew how to carry out these types of ritual killings was responsible for this one. If this was a true muti killing, there would have been more missing body parts besides just the head and the penis, and there would have been organs that were actually harvested from the body. So this was helpful information, but the investigators still had to figure out how to identify who these remains belonged to. A description of the victim was sent to agencies all across Europe and cross-referenced with people listed as missing persons. A DNA sample was also taken from the body parts and checked against databases. Unfortunately, there were no matches, but they did learn that their victim was a black man. It would end up being several weeks before investigators finally got a tip that would send them in the right direction. And we're going to get right back into the story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. A few weeks ago, a friend was asking me if I had a moisturizer I really liked. Without hesitation, I told her about Tarte Sea Drink of H2O Hydrating Boost Moisturizer, which I am obsessed with. Then she asked where I got it, and I realized it was from my FabFitFun box, and it's where I find all of my favorite things. The FabFitFun box is a fun way to try out tons of products that you either didn't know were a thing or you knew they were a thing and you wanted to try them maybe, but it seemed a little pricey. We've gotten several boxes at this point, and I'm more excited for each one I get. One of my favorite things in this box was my Botkier New York Bond Tote. It's a coal black tote made of smooth nylon, and what I really love is that it's versatile, so you can wear it with your sweats or dress it up to go with your jeans or dresses. It's valued at $128, so even if nothing else came in the box, it would have already paid for itself. But FabFitFun gives you so much more. One of my favorite things about getting a new FabFitFun box is the variety of high-quality things I can get. And the Members Pick Box is created specifically with FabFitFun members' top-rated products from past seasons. With this box, you are getting the best of the best. When you order yours, you have so many choices. But don't worry, you can never make a bad choice because everything FabFitFun has is high quality and awesome. And best of all, you don't have to leave your house because the boxes are delivered right to your door. It's time to customize your box for the fall season. Sign up today to receive your first box and join a community of over 1 million women who are already obsessed. Use coupon code MOMS for $10 off your first box at FabFitFun.com. That's code MOMS for $10 off your first box at FabFitFun.com. As a mom, we wear a lot of hats like person who heats up food in the microwave or person who knows where the scissors are. But one thing that's really hard about being a mom is making the time to take care of myself. Luckily, Noom makes that easy. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps its users develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. And Noom only asks for 10 minutes a day for you, which even the toilet cleaner of the family can find time to do. Change is hard, but Noom is easy. One thing that's been huge for me in trying to live a healthier lifestyle is tracking what I'm eating. But if it's not easy, quite frankly, I'm probably not going to do it. The food I eat affects me and my mood and how my body feels. With Noom's easy-to-use food logger, it's so easy to keep track of what I'm eating while also noticing patterns. Noom even gives you information on the food you're eating and suggestions for what you could do differently. With Noom, I have a goal specialist plus an entire community working on the same goals as me. So even when I fall off the wagon, they're there to encourage, not shame me. So I feel confident continuing to work towards my goals. Noom wants to empower you to reach your goals. Small steps make big progress. 
Sign up for your trial today at Noom, that's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how investigators in Dublin, Ireland, were working to identify the dismembered remains of a man that were found floating in the Royal Canal on March 30th, 2005. On May 9th, a woman named Deirdre Highland notified a cousin of hers that worked for the police department that she had heard rumors through the grapevine that a friend of hers hadn't been seen or heard from in some time. She attempted to make contact with him herself, but after she couldn't get in touch with him, she decided to just pass along this information to the police. Her friend was named Farah Noor, and a mutual friend named Ali Abu Bakar is who initially put it together that Farah was missing. Ali read an article in the paper that there were body parts that were found, and in the article it showed a photo of a white jersey that was found on the victim. Ali thought it was very unnerving because Farah always wore this white Ireland jersey, so he tried calling to check up on him. But when he got no response from Farah, he began asking friends in Dublin if they'd seen him, and when no one had, he asked Deirdre. When Deirdre told all this to the investigators, they went themselves to go meet with Ali. Ali said that the last time he saw Farah, he was actually wearing that very same white Ireland jersey and that they were hanging out together with Farah's girlfriend named Kathleen. Police also spoke with Deirdre, who gave them all the information she knew as well. After hearing what they had to say, police looked into Farah by running his name through their system to see what popped up. Oddly enough, he did show up in the system. He had numerous prior offenses as well as records of domestic abuse filed by a past girlfriend. As part of that file, investigators learned that Farah had a son with a woman, which was really important and kind of a big piece of the puzzle for DNA reasons. If they could match the child's DNA with the DNA from the recovered remains, they would know who their victim was. On May 20th, police went to speak with the mother of Farah's son. She told them all about her relationship with Farah and how she met him in 1998 when she was just 16 years old while she was walking through town with some friends. Farah told her that he was 20 at the time, and the two began dating, and their relationship got serious really, really quickly. Farah charmed his way into her heart, and just three months later, she was pregnant. She said that Farah was a great father when their son was born, but that after the couple moved in together to raise the baby, Farah changed. He began drinking heavily and had worked his way up to drinking three liters of vodka a week. He began physically abusing her and would beat her every few days, and eventually he started raping her as well, and before long he was doing both of these daily. She confided in her friends about the abuse and the treatment she was receiving from Vera, and one of her friends threatened to tell the woman's parents if she didn't take their baby and leave. She didn't leave, she actually stayed with Vera, and the friend made good on the promise, and told her parents. And so the woman's parents came and got her and the baby in 2001. I'm saying her because she must have chosen to be anonymous because there is no, you can't find a name for this woman. Right. So Farah would have visitation with his son once a week and he allegedly doted on the little boy, but his unwanted behavior towards the child's mother continued. Now Farah began stalking this woman. And when she went to the police to get a protection order, it didn't really make any difference at all to Farah. He just continued to stalk and harass her. Eventually, the woman found a new boyfriend, and they were later married. At that point, Farah did stop stalking her, and he also stopped visiting their son. 
So this woman told the police all of this, and they showed her a photo of the white Ireland jersey that was found with the remains in the canal. And she said that Farah did wear jerseys like that. The investigators then disclosed that they believed Farah had been the victim of murder and dismemberment, but they explained to the woman that they hadn't been able to identify him, so they were hoping to collect a DNA sample from their son to prove that this really was Farah's remains. She agreed, and officers took a swab from inside the boy's mouth. While speaking with the woman, police heard a familiar name again, Kathleen Mulhall. So if you'll remember, when Ali Bakar spoke with investigators, he mentioned Kathleen as well and said that she was Farah's girlfriend. So now this ex-girlfriend was telling the officers that Kathleen had actually reached out to her several times for advice after Farah started abusing her. This woman told Kathleen to get out of the relationship as fast as possible and that Farah would never change. She told Kathleen her story about being in this relationship with Farah and how hard it was for her to get out. And this woman had to file a restraining order in, in order to gain full custody of their son. Farah made this woman's life a living hell, and it seemed like he was doing the same thing to Kathleen. Kathleen called the woman a few times, and it was always really late at night, and they would have these conversations. And then one day, Kathleen just stopped calling. After hearing all of this, investigators wanted to track down Kathleen herself. They learned of an address where Kathleen lived, but when they knocked on the door, another woman answered and said that she was the new resident of the flat there and that Kathleen no longer lived there. Police asked if the woman had seen or noticed anything unusual and asked if they could bring an evidence team into the flat to look around. The woman agreed. A forensic team took swabs from all over different places inside the flat, including what appeared to be blood particles. These samples would be taken to the lab and tested against DNA from the body parts. Meanwhile, as police were looking for Kathleen, she was apparently looking for help from them as well. She approached a welfare officer on May 23rd and alleged that she did not know where her boyfriend, Farah, was and that she was worried about him. She asked the officer if he would be able to give her Farah's address so she could go and check on him, which is kind of weird since she should know where he lives since they are in a relationship. You would think right. they would, she would have that information pretty easily. So investigators started putting together a file on the relationship between Kathleen and Farah. It was clear from past statements and interviews with friends that Farah was and had always been abusive. One person who knew him was quoted as saying he was, quote, highly volatile and aggressive, end quote. Kathleen and Farah met around 2002 while Kathleen was still married to her ex-husband, John. She left John and moved out of their home to be with Farah. The two of them moved back to Dublin in 2004 and lived in the Richmond Cottages, which is where investigators went looking for Kathleen, only to find out that a new tenant lived there. As they dug more into Kathleen, they learned that she had been hospitalized, quote, on umpteen occasions as a result of the beatings that Farah frequently inflicted on her. At this point, they still didn't know where Kathleen actually was, only that she had this extensive history with who they believed was the victim, and they still had to wait for the results of the DNA test to come back to confirm that Farah was even the victim they were looking for. That took a few weeks to come in, but on July 15th, the DNA from Farah's son was a match to the DNA of the body in the water, which meant that it really was Farah who was dead. Investigators then used the DNA to compare to the samples they found and swabbed in the flat where Farah lived with Kathleen. And that was also found to be a match. So a full examination of the flat was carried out on July 21st. In processing the evidence in the flat, technicians used luminol to look for traces of blood, and they found a lot more than they bargained for. 
There were traces of blood at the base of the bunk bed in the bedroom, as well as blood staining on surfaces in the bedroom. The stains were mostly down low, which led them to believe that Farah had been attacked while he was on the floor. More traces of blood were found in the grooves of the pine planks on the wardrobe, but not on the actual surface of the planks, which would only be the case if a cleanup had occurred. So if somebody was trying to wipe it off and then some of the blood got into the grooves and, you know, in the wood, but the rest of it was still clean. It was obvious that this flat was where Farrah was murdered. But so far, we haven't really talked much about exactly who Farrah even was. He was born Farrah Noor on July 7th, 1965 in the coast province in Kenya. There is very little known about his life before his murder, but he was a fisherman in Ireland and worked for Schmidt ECS. Farah had a few relationships over his life, and they were pretty much all terrible. He was with a woman named Husna for a while, and they had three children together. But as we mentioned before, Farah was always abusive, and it was no different with her. He beat and raped her throughout their relationship. And then there was the other relationship we talked about in the story with the mother of Farah's son that they collected the DNA from. That woman, as I said, did not want her name out there in the media, but she later testified that Farah would pull her hair and hit her, that he carried knives, and that he raped her on an almost daily basis, and she feared that he would kill her one day. As for Farah's crime history, he had charges for things relating to intoxication, threatening and abusive behavior, and assault. In fact, he had eight different charges for disorder and assault, and one included a sexual assault where a knife was actually found at the scene. He was convicted three times, but he never served any jail time for these offenses. Oh my gosh. I know. At the very end of 1996, Farah relocated to Ireland from Kenya and filed an application for refugee status. On the application, he said that he was born in Somali capital, Mogadishu, on July 2nd, 1967. His employment was listed as a fisherman with the Department of Fisheries. However, things get a little weird when he also alleged that his wife and three kids were dead and had been killed in a civil war five years earlier. He allegedly stayed in Kenya for these five years before he paid an agent to get him a flight to Europe. These applications for refugee status take a really long time to process, so months passed, and in June of 1998, the Department of Justice finally met with Farah in person. He told them that he didn't know where his family was and didn't know how to find his own parents. He claimed that he was afraid to go home to Kenya because he was an ethnic minority there and could be killed by gorillas, the people group, not animals. Months passed and Farah was interviewed again on September 17, 1998. This time, while he was talking to the interviewers, he showed them what he said were faded scars from an assault by soldiers. After some consideration, Farah's application was denied in mid-December, with the reason being that officials really didn't believe his story. On February 2, 1999, he was informed of the decision, which he later appealed, and he had to wait for a re-interview, which didn't happen until June 3, 1999. Luckily for Farah, the appeals authority, quote, recommended that he be allowed to stay, end quote, and Farah was given citizenship. A few years later, he met Kathleen. As we mentioned before, Kathleen was actually married when she first met Farah. Kathleen married her husband, John, when they were just teenagers, and together they had six children, three boys and three girls. Unfortunately, Kathleen herself had grown up with abusive parents, and the cycle continued when she married John, who was also known to be abusive towards her. In his younger years, John was a heavy drinker who got violent when alcohol entered the picture, but he was a breadwinner of the family. 
So we're not going to talk about all six of the kids that Kathleen and John had together, but two of their daughters in particular are fundamental to this story. So we will, of course, talk about them. Their names are Linda and Charlotte. Linda was born in 1975 and grew up with the family near Dublin. As a child, she suffered from panic attacks, possibly due to her chaotic home environment, and in her teenage years, she turned to drugs to cope. She ended up in a relationship with a man that she had four children with, but this relationship ended and Linda then ended up in a relationship with another man who physically abused her and her children. He was eventually charged and convicted and Linda became a single mom after he went to jail. Linda struggled with drugs throughout her life and she was addicted to heroin. She was unemployed, but she didn't have a very big criminal record. She was arrested once for larceny in 1993, but that was it. After Kathleen left to go pursue a relationship with Farah, Linda stayed behind and continued living in her childhood home with her father and some of her siblings. The other daughter that is relevant to this story is Charlotte. She was eight years younger than Linda, but suffered from many of the same issues that her older sister did. She also lived in the family's home with Linda even after Kathleen left. Charlotte had been arrested before on charges of criminal damage and public order, and she was sentenced to do probation. She was later arrested for solicitation of sex, but it's unclear whether she regularly did sex work. Even though the relationship between Kathleen and her daughters was very dysfunctional, they did have a relationship and they hung out often. Kathleen's kids were fully aware of Farah and his abusive and really creepy actions because they'd witnessed his behavior themselves, and to say they didn't really like him would be an understatement. In fact, it may have been one of Farah's inappropriate and terrifying advances that actually led to his death. Even though it was uncomfortable to be around Farah, the two young women still enjoyed spending time with their mom, and that's what they were doing on March 20th, 2005. It was just a few days after St. Patrick's Day, which is obviously a pretty big deal in Ireland, so Farah and Kathleen and probably many others there had spent the week on a drinking bender, and it had really just been a nonstop party for several days in a row. On March 20th, Charlotte and Linda met up with Kathleen on O'Connell Street in Dublin City Center. Farrah was also there with Kathleen when the girls met up with them. The four of them decided to spend the day drinking and wandering around the city, but instead of going to bars or pubs, they just stopped and got a big bottle of vodka and some bottles of Coca-Cola, and they mixed their own drinks to carry around the streets. Keep in mind, it is the middle of the day, and there are families wandering around sightseeing and all, and these four are just drinking vodka in the streets in the middle of the day. But Linda and Charlotte wanted to party even harder. They all stopped at the boardwalk and Linda and Charlotte took ecstasy pills. When Kathleen found out that they were taking them, she asked if she could also have one. So all three of the women took ecstasy, but Farah did not. He just stuck to drinking vodka. As the drug started to kick in, they decided that they should head back to Kathleen's flat. While they were walking back, they ran into Farah's friend that we mentioned earlier, Ollie, and they talked to him for a little bit. When they got back to the flat, Kathleen and Farah started arguing with each other, and things quickly got worse from there. Linda was sitting on her sister Charlotte's lap when Farah came into the room and put his arm around Linda's waist, pulled her in close, and said something vulgar in her ear. Kathleen came into the room and asked what was going on, and Charlotte snapped at Farah to get his hands off of Linda. So keep in mind, as we said, these women know that Farah has this history of abusive behavior and even rape, so that would be really scary to have a man like that making any kind of inappropriate remarks or advances at you. I, you know, you can understand how they would be really scared in that moment of him of him acting that way. 
Right. So in a split second decision, Charlotte grabbed a Stanley blade that was sitting on the counter and quickly cut Farrah's throat. He stumbled his way to the bedroom and fell, hitting his head on the bunk bed along the way. At this point, Linda then picked up a hammer and hit Farrah over the head numerous times while Charlotte used the knife to stab him. After the murder, Charlotte told her mom, Kathleen, that Farrah was dead. And Kathleen allegedly began screaming and said, get him out, get him out. The three women worked together to drag Farrah's body to the bathroom, and Charlotte suggested that they should dismember the body to dispose of it easier. Using a knife, the women took turns dismembering Farrah's body into nine different pieces. When they were done, they put the head inside of a suitcase and took it outside, and they put the rest of the parts into black trash bags, which they then put inside of several different gym bags. From there, the women went down to the Royal Canal in multiple different trips to carry these bags down to the water and dispose of them. The only thing they did not put into the water was the head because they knew that it would be easy to identify Farah if they found the head. So they made another plan for that. But first, they had to get back to the flat and clean up the evidence. There was blood all over the apartment, which they tried to clean up as best they could using towels to soak up the blood, as well as mops, buckets, and other pieces of clothing. The women cleaned and cleaned for hours, trying to hide any trace of the crime they'd just committed. Almost a week later, Kathleen even bought a new carpet to replace the bloodied one that was inside of her flat. On that same day, they decided it was time to figure out what to do with the severed head that they still had in a bag in the backyard. They took the bag and had a plan to take a bus to a nearby town called Talat. But first, they stopped and got something to eat, which I just think is bizarre because they literally have a head in a bag and they're like, let's stop and get some food before we go take care of this. Yeah, this thing. Just a head in the bag. Yeah, just it's definitely a strange, <laughs> strange situation. Feels very risky for sure. For sure. So we're actually going to get right back into what they did next after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. There's no better feeling as an adult than getting mail for you that isn't a bill. One thing that hasn't been mastered in the mail is buying bras. Until now. Thanks to Third Love, even buying a bra can be part of your fun mail. That's because Third Love can help you find the perfect fit in just 60 seconds, thanks to their easy and fun Fit Finder quiz. You simply answer a few questions about breast size and shape and answer what size you're currently wearing and how it fits, and they help you pick your perfect style and size. Plus, over 15 million women have taken the Fit Finder quiz to date, so they aren't just guesstimating your needs in a bra. It's backed by real research of real women of all shapes and sizes. Plus, Third Love has signature details like memory foam cups and their no-slip straps and scratch-free band. Third Love creates these better bras that focus on what really matters, keeping you comfortable. So they use no shortcuts and no substitution. I spent the majority of my life just guessing my bra size. Even after I had kids, it was a full-on guess. I figured the bra fit pretty well and that bras just weren't meant to be comfortable. But I was wrong. I took Third Love's Fit Finder quiz and wouldn't you know it, I was wearing the wrong size. But now, not only does my Third Love bra fit amazingly well, the bras from Third Love are comfortable and cute. I only wish I would have known about Third Love years ago. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 10% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 10% off today. Can you really have comfort, style, and sustainability all in one shoe? Rothy's took this exact challenge and ran with it and created the most ridiculously cute and comfortable shoes on the planet. 
Speaking of the planet, Rothy's has made their shoes out of recycled water bottles, yet they are still so comfortable and you can actually put them on and wear them all day right out of the box with zero break-in period. Rothy's are the everyday flats for life on the go. They're stylish and versatile, and they go with everything from your yoga pants to your dresses and skirts. Mandy and I both chose a pair of the sneakers from Rothy's, and they are our go-to shoes. I'm so obsessed with mine, I decided to pick up a pair for my sister. My sweet little niece drew on my sister's shoe with crayons, which was really no problem since Rothy's are machine washable. Rothy's also come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges, so there's no risk, no worries, no reason not to try. Rothy's knocked their shoes out of the park, so now they're taking on bags. Who amongst us hasn't melted chocolate in their purse and internally screamed while trying to wipe it out while actually just rubbing it in more, and then wished for a machine washable purse? Rothy's is now making that dream a reality. Check out all the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com slash moms. That's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how these women had killed and dismembered Farah and how they were now looking to get rid of his head. So after the women ate, they walked around the shopping center and then headed to a park to find a spot to bury the head. Charlotte used a knife to dig a hole and Kathleen threw the knife and hammer used in the murder into some water nearby. Once the head was buried, the women went back to Kathleen's, but they were worried they'd get caught and so they were all really physically sick over what had happened. Over the next several days and weeks, Linda and Charlotte were really kind of a mess. Linda was constantly crying and unable to sleep and just generally had a guilty conscience about what they had done. She said that every time she closed her eyes, all she saw was Farrah's face and scenes from the dismemberment just played over and over in her head. Charlotte struggled with the same horrifying memories and visions, so the two women turned to drugs and alcohol. At some point, Linda was concerned that they hadn't hidden the head well enough, so she went back to where they buried it and moved it. She drank a liter of vodka, dug up the bag that they had the head in, placed it into her son's school backpack, and then took it to a field nearby. She buried the head and then burned the plastic bag and the school bag. By the time police had discovered the remains in the canal and started an investigation, the women were really in rough shape emotionally. After the technicians found all the blood and evidence in Kathleen's flat, they started looking into her phone records as well as Linda and Charlotte's. They learned that Linda and Charlotte had been in contact with their father, John Sr., on the night of the murder, which then made them suspicious of John. All four of them were interviewed, which resulted in all of them being arrested. Linda was taken into custody at her home, and Charlotte was arrested in a location nearby. Kathleen was arrested while walking down the street, and John was arrested in South Dublin. They were all taken for interviews, but none of them gave any useful information. They either just sat there in silence or gave different accounts of their movements, but nothing they said was really important or revealing. All four of them denied having any part in the murder. Kathleen even went as far as to say that she knew he was alive and was out there somewhere. She told the police a list of people that she had been asking to help her locate Farah. After 12 hours of interrogation, police had no legal reason to hold Kathleen, John, Charlotte, and Linda, so they let them all leave. But they continued to piece together evidence in hopes of finding something that would lead to charges. After being arrested and interrogated, John Sr. was not handling the situation well, and things really went downhill quickly. So keep in mind, John Sr. really didn't have a thing to do with this murder, but 
things look bad for him and the police were investigating him anyways, which I think would personally be, I don't know, it's almost like that would scare me more than if I had committed a crime because it's like you, it's out of your hands. Like if the police think that you're guilty of something, if they find anything, I would just be so scared to have police kind of sniffing around me for a murder, especially because that is just very, very stressful and nerve wracking, especially if you didn't have anything to do with it. I would just be so scared that like I would end up doing time for something I didn't have any part in. Oh, I a million percent would. There's just no doubt in my mind if I'm ever questioned for anything, I'll just say, lock me up. They'll be like, oh, you are guilty. I'll say no, but you're not going to believe me. And they'll say you're definitely guilty. And then that'll just be what ends me. (laughs) Exactly. Or like it could be anything. Like, I I, I don't know. I just can't think of any examples off the top of my head. But like, I feel like if there was anything that even looked remotely suspicious, the police would find it about me. And then they would be like, oh, you definitely have, you know, you know something. And they would... Yeah, they would say to me, oh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to believe that you're home every night from 8 to 12 watching right. reality TV. <laughs> Lock her up. Yeah, seriously. So John Sr. was not handling all of this whole process very well and having, you know, the police investigating him for this murder. But by this point, some of John Sr. and Kathleen's other children also knew what was going on. Another daughter, Marie, saw the emotional pain that her father was in and decided to take matters into her own hands. She cornered Linda in the family home and told her that she better tell the police exactly what happened. And if she didn't, Marie said that she was going to go to the police herself and tell them what Charlotte told her about the murder, which was that she and Linda were responsible. At the time, Marie didn't believe what her sister was saying because she said that she was drunk at the time. But when Marie heard about the body that was found floating in the canal and the police started coming around, she knew that her sisters really, truly had done this. On August 17th, which was five months after the murder, John Sr. finally called the police and asked if they would come talk to him. And he told them that Linda knew where Farrah's head was and that she was really scared, but he believed that she was a good person and and that she would talk to the police and tell them the truth if they tried to speak with her. So the investigators agreed to come to the home later that evening to try to talk to her. But when they arrived, Linda wasn't home and she supposedly was on her way there, but then she never showed up. When John tried to call her, she didn't answer. So eventually the officers left the house. Later that night, John Sr. called the investigators again to tell them that Linda didn't show up because she had actually been hospitalized following an attempt to take her own life. She was treated and sent home to rest, and two days later, the police came back to try and talk to her again at the Mulhall house. Linda wasn't having it. She wouldn't even make eye contact with the officers, much less talk to them. So the officers decided that they would just leave her alone, but they did let her know that they weren't going to stop trying to get information until they got to the truth. Before the officers left the house, John Sr. talked to them again and told them that his other daughter, Marie, would like to give a statement regarding what Charlotte told her. So officers agreed to set up a time for that to happen. But before Marie was able to meet with the investigators, Linda called them herself and asked them to come back because she was ready to talk to them. When the officers arrived, Linda was crying uncontrollably, but said that she was ready to give a full confession. And she told the officers everything that happened that day and how she and her sister Charlotte were the ones to kill Farah and dismember him. After Linda confessed, the detectives asked if she would take them to where she had buried Farrah's head. Linda agreed, but when they got there, they weren't able to find it. Linda also showed officers the lake that Kathleen threw the knives and hammer into, which were later recovered by officials. Police took her back to the station to give her confession on tape. 
She cried hysterically throughout the entire confession, and officers believed that she was really remorseful. After she gave the interview, police drove her home, and along the way, she pointed out the park where the women had first buried the head. Keep in mind, she's confessed to murder, and the police are like, all right, you ready to go home now? We will see right. you later. <laughs> it is a weird, yeah. it is a very weird thing, and I don't know if that's just how things work in Ireland, or if they've even done that in the U.S. I truly do not know, but it does seem like a very, a weird sequence. It feels like once you confess, right. you're like, well, now now we arrest you, right? Like, that's, that's right. what happens next. Or they at least will hold you in custody. I don't know. Maybe that's just – maybe that is how they just do it differently over there, that you don't go to jail until you're actually – I don't know, unless they really – I really don't know how, why that would be the case. It does seem weird that they would say, okay, thanks for your story. Now we'll just take you home. Yeah, enjoy your time. So even though Linda confessed, police still had to corroborate her story, which is really probably why they were – waiting to actually arrest her it is kind of crazy that somebody's confessing to this murder and it's so graphic and they can't find the head so you know maybe she is just making this up so the next day they went back to linda's to work with her again and she was taken to the police station to give a more direct and pointed interview where the officers were able to ask the specific questions that they needed answers to during this interview she told the police that her father john had absolutely nothing to do with this crime in any way he really had no idea about any of it. Officers took Linda back to the flat where Farrah was killed and asked her to reenact what happened during the killing. This was mostly unsuccessful because Linda once again became hysterical and wouldn't stop crying uncontrollably. Officers continued on their own trying to process the crime scenes and locate the rest of the remains, but they were never able to recover the head or the penis. They didn't see or speak to Linda again for a couple of weeks, and when they finally caught up with her again, she was in a severe state of depression. Linda agreed to be filmed retracing her steps from the crime one more time. When they got to the bridge where they threw the body parts in, Linda became very upset and started sobbing. After they were done with this process, Linda once again went home. At this point, officers believe that the rest of Farrah's remains had been carried off by an animal. In the meantime, police had been working to locate Farrah's real family. They worked with Interpol to locate Farrah's wife and mother of his first three kids back in Kenya. When they contacted her, she said that she had already heard about Farrah's death, and she told them about how he had severely abused her during their relationship. She gave them a copy of Farrah's birth certificate, which had his mother's name on it, and they were able to locate her on September 23rd, and they notified her of his death. By the time they found Farrah's family, they had already arrested those responsible for the murder. Linda had been arrested on September 14th at her home. She was charged with murder, but was released on bail, which really wasn't a great idea for her because she was already depressed before her arrest and charges. And while she was out on bail, her drug and alcohol use only got much worse. Kathleen was also arrested on September 14th. She told police in an interview that Farrah beat her regularly and had threatened to kill her the week before he was murdered. She alleged that he smothered her with pillows until she managed to kick him off of her and told him to leave. Once again, she left the station without formal charges against her. She moved to Birmingham, Britain, and then, quote, vanished without a trace. Three days later, Charlotte was arrested on unrelated minor offenses, but police told her that they also had a warrant to arrest her in Farrah's murder. So she agreed to talk to the police and tell them the truth. But that's not exactly what she did at first. She actually lied to the investigators and told them that she wasn't even in the flat when the murder took place 
And she said that she and Linda were gone from 10 p.m. until 5 or 6 the next morning. And that the last time she saw Farah was before they left the flat that night before. And she said that the reason they even left was because they were tired of listening to Kathleen and Farah arguing. She claimed that she and her sister spent the whole night drinking on the boardwalk and that when they returned to the flat at 5 or 6 a.m., Farrah was already dead and dismembered and that their mother was covered in blood. Charlotte claimed that Kathleen told her she killed Farrah and dismembered his body, and then the three of them went and dumped the remains. She claimed that it was Kathleen who did something with Farrah's head. So the police listen to this whole story, and they're realizing that it doesn't really make any sense. They've already corroborated the other story that was given by Linda, and that definitely seems to fit more. So they started asking Charlotte about these inconsistencies in her story and told her that Linda already gave them a full confession that could be corroborated. And so then at this point, Charlotte broke down and admitted that her story was a lie and that what Linda told them was the truth. She said they were all out drinking and that Farrah didn't want to take ecstasy, but Kathleen slipped some into his drink anyway. And then Farrah grabbed Linda and things were chaotic and everyone was arguing with each other. Charlotte said that's when Linda hit him with the hammer and stabbed him in the neck, but she said that she didn't know exactly what it was that killed him. She then admitted to cutting up the body and burying the head in a park, which Linda later moved to another location. At that point, Charlotte was also charged with murder. Even though John Sr. had nothing to do with the murder, he was arrested on November 10th. Investigators wanted to know more about why he talked to his daughters on the phone on the night of March 20th. The girls had called their father at 1141 to tell him what had happened. Ten minutes later, he called Kathleen to ask her if Linda and Charlotte were being serious or if this was some kind of a joke. John called Kathleen a second time before midnight. He said he really didn't believe that they had killed anyone, but he still really had a bad feeling, so he drove over to Kathleen's flat anyway just to check on things. When he got there, it was 1.03 a.m. He went inside and saw body parts in a bag in the corner, which made him physically ill. He ran from the house vomiting and told them that he wanted nothing to do with this at all, and he left. Police eventually believed John's story, and they let him go. Charlotte and Linda were given a combined trial. It began on October 12, 2006, and lasted for 10 days. Linda, who we had mentioned had spiraled into drug and alcohol abuse while out on bail, actually didn't even show up for the first day of her and Charlotte's trial, so a bench warrant was issued and police were actively looking for her. The trial actually had to be put on hold until they could find her. She ended up turning herself in less than 24 hours later. She was ordered to have a psych evaluation before the trial could continue, and she was found unfit to stand trial due to all the drugs and alcohol in her system. This delayed the trial for a week. The trial ended up lasting 10 days. The woman could be found guilty of murder or manslaughter or not guilty of either. The prosecution's case was mostly based on the sisters' confessions, and they also said that the woman dismembered the body to make it harder to identify the victim. The defense's case was that the women were provoked to murder Farah in self-defense. The jury actually returned multiple times and told the judge that they were deadlocked. The judge told the jury that he really wanted a unanimous decision and asked them to deliberate more. After 18 hours, the jury returned with a verdict. Out of the 12 jurors, 11 of them thought that Linda was guilty of manslaughter, and 10 of them thought that Charlotte was guilty of murder. On December 4, 2006, the women were sentenced. The judge says the case was, quote, the most grotesque case of killing that has occurred within my professional lifetime, end quote. He sentenced Charlotte to life in prison for murder. Linda was sentenced to 15 years for manslaughter. 
She could have gotten an 18 to 20 year sentence, but the judge gave her a break due to her record and her assistance with the case. At this point in time, nobody had been successful in locating Kathleen. A couple of weeks after Charlotte and Linda were sentenced, their father, John Sr., took his own life. He just couldn't cope with all that had happened. A year passed, and then in December of 2007, Kathleen was finally found by the Sunday Tribune. She dyed her hair blonde and told people that her name was Kathleen Ward, and she was also getting state benefits under this fake name. The Ireland police went to London in February of 2008 to meet with her, and they ended up taking her back to Dublin, where she would face charges. In her interview regarding what happened the night Farrah was murdered, Kathleen said that she was in another room when she heard what she called roaring and shouting, and she then saw Linda come out of a room with blood all over her and saying that Farrah was dead. Kathleen said she went into the room and saw that he was not breathing, so her daughters dragged him out of the room and shut the door. She said that she then helped her girls clean the room up the next day, and she did not report the murder because she wanted to protect her daughters. Charges were brought on Kathleen in February of 2008. She was charged with aiding and abetting another person in the concealment of a crime, and later there were more charges added, including withholding information, cleaning up a crime scene, five counts of giving false information on Farrah's whereabouts, and two counts of pretending she didn't know where Farrah was. She pleaded guilty to concealing evidence relating to murder and was sentenced to just five years in prison. All three of the women were actually sent to the same prison to serve their time. Kathleen served her time and was released in 2011. As of 2018, she lives in London and allegedly has two very serious lung conditions. According to one source, Linda and Charlotte ran the prison beauty salon at one point. Linda occasionally has visits with her children, and she appealed her sentence due to the judge not having access to psychiatric and probation reports at the time of her sentencing, but that appeal was denied. She was released in January of 2018 and moved to the UK, and as of 2018, she does not have any contact with her mom, Kathleen. So when Charlotte first went to prison, her baby would come to see her about once a week. She also appealed her sentence based on the judge's remarks about wanting a unanimous verdict, but that appeal was also denied. So that must also be different there than how it is here, because um, here you have to have a unanimous um, vote from the jury. So over there, it's a little bit different. And I guess it does not have to be unanimous, probably majority. So Charlotte actually started dating from behind bars, and she eventually got engaged to another inmate named Karen Kelly. Karen was actually released from prison in 2012, but she sadly died in 2015. Charlotte ended up getting transferred to a different prison after she was caught having sexual relations with a prison employee in 2018. And so she is still serving her life sentence at this new prison. And yeah, she'll be there for life. Her appeals have been all denied as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's very interesting that she and her sister were in the same prison together because I was thinking when I first read this, oh, maybe there wasn't another place nearby, or I don't know how jurisdictions work. I don't know how any of that works, of course, in Ireland. Um, But if they were able to transfer her for having an inappropriate relationship with a guard, then you would think, I just didn't think they would have them together. Doesn't that seem strange? Is that a thing I'm missing? I feel like like that doesn't happen very often. I'm going to sound like an idiot. I'm putting it out there. No need to write me and tell me I'm an idiot. Um, But it does seem strange that they would have like co-conspirators in a way at the same place. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that they all got such vastly different sentences. Totally. um, Because 
I just feel like, yeah, I don't know, the dismemberment and everything and even Kathleen like being there and admitting that she, you know, knew what happened and didn't tell the police because she wanted to protect her kids and all that. I'm surprised she only got five years for her part in that because that's I mean, over here, I feel like people would get a lot more time for that. But you know what? It always depends because we see things where it's just so uh, we did the case of James Ray a few weeks ago and how incredibly small his sentence was, you know, compared to what you would think. So right. it is it I guess it's it's probably case by case, very similar to where it is here. But the thing I was most surprised about is because we're so used to it being, you know, it's either uh, a hung jury or you've got a verdict. There's no or, you know, it's unanimous. There's no majority rules kind of situation. So that was interesting to hear that, you know, a few people didn't think they were guilty of the crimes that they ended up being committed for on the jury. And uh, so that's an interesting thing that's different here or where the stories we normally cover versus what uh, happened there. So it's always interesting to talk about international uh, stories. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Melissa, are we ready to move on to last thing before we go? Turn the page. Sorry, we're going to turn the page. We'll do whatever we <laughs> need to do. Last thing before we go. <laughs> yes. So what are we doing, Melissa? Are we going to talk about some Irish things? Yeah. Slight change of plans. I found some uh, Irish phrases and that I'm not familiar with. I'll be interested to see if you've heard of them. And Mandy's going to guess what they mean. And so play along and hope you do well and hope these are real yeah. and I didn't find them on some weird site. So Mandy, your word is earwigging. And let me know if you want an oh. example. I definitely want <laughs> an example. <laughs> really? Okay. So here's the example that is probably not very helpful. You were earwigging again, yes? I mean, that is not helpful. I know, right? At all. <laughs> Um, I'm going to say um, like being facetious or joking around or like. Ooh. You're, you would be wrong, but I like where you're going. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense. You're wigging. You're listening in on a private conversation. Oh, like eavesdropping. Yeah. But like the ears yeah. involved, that makes sense, right? Yes, it does. I'm to- I want to start using that now. Right? It's good. It's good. Except I'm the one that's normally earwagging or earwigging. So that's not helpful. Um Okay, so the next one. I just want to say if if people are listening on my side and it sounds like it's pouring rain and storming, that's because it is. It just started raining really hard at my house. Um, So I apologize for that. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is it'll be in my house in five minutes. So we're trying to wrap this up. So you only hear it on at least one side. Um, Yeah, yeah, this is just Florida in in this time of year. We we really cannot coordinate around it. I promise we try. Okay, so the next one, Mandy, is effing and blinding. What do you think effing and blinding is? And let me know if you want an example because it's just as helpful as the last one. I mean, let's hear it. Let's he hear was, the example. <laughs> he was effing and blinding nonstop. What? He was effing and blinding nonstop. Effing and blinding? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You ready? He was swearing and cursing nonstop. That makes sense too, right? The FN does. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like yeah. it. All right. I just have two more. Yeah, two more. Okay. okay. The next one is um, Jax. I'm off to the Jax. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. The gym? No, Mandy. You know if it's me, it's going to be something <laughs> way worse. Um, toilet. I'm off to the Jax. I'm off to the toilet. Oh, my gosh. I've never heard <laughs> it called that. Again, don't know if this was from a legit site. It's just me Googling. Let's see. We've got... Um, Okay, here's one. Sucking diesel. 
Now, <laughs> now you're sucking diesel, my friend. Um, I don't know. I feel like that could be like, I don't know. I really don't know. You, <laughs> you probably don't know. I like that. Like, I don't know. I probably <laughs> don't know. Okay. This one is now you're talking. Now you're doing well. Sucking diesel. Sucking diesel. Mandy. I don't understand Irish phrases because I don't understand how they have any correlation to like their actual meaning. Like earwigging? That doesn't. Makes total sense. I mean, sense. earwigging kind of makes sense if you know, but sucking diesel. Means, yeah, you're off and going. Like, I mean. Your truck. <laughs> like you're. You're like. Your gas up. Your gas. Okay. It makes the exact same sense. Yeah. Sucking diesel. And Mandy, I have to say, I think we sucked a lot of diesel in this episode. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. <laughs> That's all I got. All right, guys. Well, that is it. It is now coming down cats and dogs, raining like cats and dogs. The it's Irish version really is like here, so. tiddlywinks and crickets or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, guys. So we will uh, see you next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms of Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much. <laughs>